This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Hey there, Dr. Robin. How are you? Well, I feel like, you know, here we are another day. Another I feel day. like I feel like we're going to do the Groundhog Day all year, all year long. I think we will. We I think we will. I mean, our listeners would be sadly disappointed if we didn't, right. um, because there are some who, you know, tweet at us at, you know, 10 a.m. on Thursday morning when the podcast hasn't, the episode hasn't been uploaded yet. So if Groundhog Day didn't occur, uh, some of them would be sorely irritated with us. Yes, yes. <laughs> We have to give them a heads up when there's not a, a week, there's not an episode for sure. Right. So um, last week I shared a little bit about how community has been showing up after the bur- burglary and, um, Folks have really came out in droves to support our losses. We finally finished the inventory claim, and and it's amazing how much stuff cost. Yes, and and insurance doesn't pay out on total cost of things; it pays out on a depreciated value, and so. Right we are still kind of in limbo to figure out how much we will recover. But let me just say that we just got back from LA where we had a really amazing uh, several days with someone who has been on our podcast, Tristan Taramino, who, yes. who has her own podcast called Sex Out Loud. And um, Tristan had a brunch in our honor with these really fancy, delicious bagels we had locks and Tristan's boyfriend is Jewish. And so because Aaron's family is Jewish, we got to talk all about Jewish things with Eli. And I got some facial hair recommendations from Eli. Um, we had a really great time. Tristan's house is very Zen. And so we got to rest. We ate well. And we just got to recover a little bit because we were still really kind of in shock. And um, I was having panic attacks last week and feeling really unmoored after the burglary. Um, But, you know, all was well in Fresno when we returned. So that eased me a bit. Um, And here we are again doing the work that we do every week. 
Well, it's good that you all are back from LA. It was nice to watch your travels um, by extension on Instagram and and Facebook. Um, I I love that you all are finding some spaciousness in the sabbatical and really kind of allowing yourselves to rest and to see your friends and to kind of engage in the community that that buoys you throughout the course of the year. Um, I'm very intrigued about uh, the facial hair discussion. Um, because you often send photos to me of like, what would it look like if this was the facial hair I had? And I'm always very intrigued. Like one of these days you're going to show up on screen and, you know, look like, um, you know, a handsome bearded giant and I'm going to not know what to say. That's for uh, a different conversation. A different, right, right. Well, I, I can yeah. feel it coming. I just, I, I know it's, yeah. I know it's going to happen. Yeah. We, um, we have had a good week here in Chattanooga. It has been um, warm and it's getting warmer, but um, things are, things are feeling um, frenetic for me here. I am uh, trying to stay out of a space of jealousy around your um, rest and relaxation period. Um, things are really ramping up here for me. And I am, I just feel like I'm one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. So I am looking forward to um although it is a problematic holiday coming up this weekend as we celebrate the oddity that is patriotism in this country that we have, um, you know, and, and Memorial day and, and the, the fact that we have lost humans um, to war and that war continues to rage. And I mean, all the things that, you know, mm-hmm. make up this, the, the, the fact that we get an extra day off this right. weekend is actually um, making my heart uh, feel a little less overwhelmed yeah. <laughs> in the, in the, uh, in the midst of this, this to-do list that I feel like I have. Well, the so. good news is I will soon be in Chattanooga and you know that I'm part sloth. So you, I know. you will get some rest. And you're you're going to be so antsy to do things because I'm so slow. You're going to be frustrated. I'm not going to be frustrated, but I I already know what's going to happen. You are going to come. We are going to do the things we want to do. We are going to have so much fun. You are then going to hibernate. And I am going to run down to my office and say, okay, Robin's resting for two hours. I can get all of these things done while they're sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. The, I mean, the extrovert seven, you know, non-rest person in me <laughs> already yep. knows exactly how this is going to go down. Yep. So, um, but it's okay. It'll, it's, I'm looking forward to you getting here. Um, we're going to be doing some live, um, some live podcasts while Robin is in town. And that brings us up to another amazing announcement that we have. We are officially taking the Activist Theology podcast on the road. On the road. We are, we have already booked um some dates in texas we are going to be coming to austin um the first weekend in august we are really really excited to to be there and we're going to be hosting a live uh podcast event on the 
7th of August in Austin, Texas. And the dates will continue to uh, build up as we mm-hmm. take this show on the road and see what kind of um, fun we're having with it. So that's a really exciting thing. We haven't yeah, and, we haven't done this yet. Right. And, and we got poached from another church. A downtown high steeple church poached us from the Presbyterian. I know. I know. I mean, you know. I mean, what can we say? I know. What can we say? Well, we're really thrilled. Um, You all will have to watch out for more uh, information on that. If you are listening from Texas, um, from the Austin area, or even within a a reasonable drive from Austin, we would love to have you come and engage with us um, at this live recording. We will have details coming up soon on the Activist Theology website, and we'll be sharing more about that event uh, on our podcast over the next couple of weeks. But that's a very exciting turn of yes, events. Yes, so, very. Um, so we are uh, really thrilled today to be having a conversation, an important conversation around um, where we find ourselves uh, with the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, there are um, quite a few sides to this conversation. And when I say sides, I mean opinions. Um, there are There is a, an incredible amount of violence that has um, finally come to a ceasefire. And I use an asterisk by ceasefire when I say that, because we recognize that the violence is never going to end until... Um, you know, we determine the outcome of a conversation around the two-party state, and quite frankly, until we have leadership in both areas that are willing to um, name the importance and the humanity of people over the the importance of weaponry and uh, warfare and politics. Um, But having said all that, we are thrilled today to have Dove Kent joining us uh, to have this conversation. Um, Dove is joining us today from Durham, North Carolina, and is going to engage with us on this conversation and share some insights that I think will help all of us um, navigate our way forward and understanding exactly what we're up against and how um, this conflict affects many of us, even if we are here in the United States. Dove Kent, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you so much to both of you. It's so good to be here with you. I'm really honored. Well, we would love it if you would start off by just giving our listeners a little bit of an understanding about who you are. Um, Let us know how you come at this work, why you think this conversation is important, um, and, um, you know, kind of why you think that it's necessary that you continue to speak into um, the ethos about, about what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm a Jewish organizer and I have been doing community organizing most of my adult life. Uh, I've had the privilege to be able to do that, uh, which is pretty extraordinary. And most of my work over the last 10 years has been 
organizing the Jewish community to really take on our right role in the larger movement for the liberation of all peoples. And um, most of that work has been focused on organizing here in the U.S. So I, uh, for several years, was directing Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in New York City. And um, I have worked at Ben the Ark the uh, past two years. And I have focused a lot of my work uh, specifically on uh, attacking the systems of white supremacy and more recently the white supremacist movements uh, that are building in our country. So that's the the kind of background that I come with. Um, My heart has been in support of Palestinian rights and Palestinian liberation since my early 20s when I became much more informed and educated about what was happening in Israel and Palestine. And it's been a a difficult last few weeks uh, for so many of us watching yet again a a war uh, and the the devastation in Gaza particularly. And so I'm just really honored to be in a conversation with y'all to be talking about both the politics of it and also the heart of it. Yeah, I, you know, the, the thing that I love about you, Kent, is that you bring all of your humanity to this work. It's not transactional and it's the thing that I recognized uh, first, when you did the Faith Matters Network uh, storytelling thing. And so <clears throat> when when our friend and colleague Isaac recommended that you were really the person that we should engage with around this, I was like, well, I've been wanting to get done on the podcast for a while uh, because your voice is so important. And so I'm wondering, you know, we, we probably have a lot of non-religious, but also deconstruction, liberal progressive, post-evangelical, ex-evangelical, we probably have those people who are listening. And and I'm wondering if you could help our audience understand why this is an important issue. And, and, And the news, you know, the commercial news sensationalizes things, polarizes things but but from a human place why is this conversation vital for the liberation of all people mm-hmm. well thank you robin for that and and for that um for that question to to start out i can tell you why some of the reasons why it's important i think that um people find their way into this in a lot of different ways And I think something that's really important to remember is that there are, unfortunately, human rights abuses happening all over the world right now. There's a way in which sometimes we can get very focused on human rights abuses happening in just one place, forget about it happening elsewhere in the world. But we can also hold that And we can focus our attention on a place where human rights abuses are happening and we can look there and we can investigate there and we can put our hearts and our minds there. So I just want to start out with that because there's some arguments that say it is 
anti-Semitic to focus specifically on Israel when there's human rights abuses happening all over the world. And I would say, yes, we have to focus on human rights abuses everywhere in the world, including in Israel. And it is not anti-Semitic to focus energy there. There has been a military occupation of Palestinian people since 1967. We can go back before that and talk about the Nakba in 1948, which for many people marks both the start of the state of Israel and also the expulsion of the majority of Palestinians from that land. So for some, it's the Israeli Day of Independence. For some, it's a, it's a day that marks uh, collective devastation. And since 1967, there is an agreed upon collective human rights violation happening. There are peoples that are in what is now called Gaza and what is, you know, kind of called the, <laughs> really it's been a long time since I've talked publicly on this. So there are Palestinians who both are in occupied military areas of the lands, and there are also Palestinians in the formal state of Israel who do not have equal rights with Israeli citizens. So there are human rights violations happening throughout the lands, and there are different different violations in different parts. So so can I just pause for a moment and just ask a question? So religion aside, we're we're just talking about human rights violation. And and folks, if you remember, we had Dr. Imiko Soltis on, who is a human rights scholar, and we and we learn the sort of five points of human rights um the things that are needed to achieve human rights. And so go back to that episode if you need a refresher. But religion aside, we're just talking about basic human rights for human people, which which we, we have needs for human rights here in the States and we have needs for human rights abroad. So, so, if you take out the colonial, the settler colonial religion of sort of chosen people narrative, if you take that away, we're just dealing with how do we provide human rights for people? Yeah. And, you know, that's a really interesting place to, to start from as well, because I actually want to separate the settler colonialism uh, which was uh, the, the form in which colonization took place on the lands with the theology of a chosen people. And that theology began thousands of years ago when actually there was the destruction of the temple uh, in what was historic Palestine uh, with the, uh, I hope I got my history right here, the Roman destruction of the temple and with the expulsion of the, uh, the Jews, the Israelites at that time, they developed a theology that could continue to allow them to believe in a God that had not deserted them and betrayed them. Uh, 
So they needed to believe that they were still God's people, even though they had been driven out of the land in which they had lived. And even though their temple had been destroyed, they were still God's people. So there's a theology of chosenness that actually developed uh, from what we would say maybe is an underdog position when it comes to power, right? And that that could sustain people. What came from that, though, is an entire religion right. that was no longer land-based, and, right. and it was text-based. Right. And, was, and there's, you know, the theology that developed was um, about the sacredness of time instead of the sacredness of place. Right. And so the importance of Shabbat um, and other practices became so central to the religion. And instead of practices that focused on the temple, practices focused on people's everyday lives and how they worked and how they treated each other. Mm -hmm. And so there was a really what most of Judaism that we know um, came about what is called like in diaspora, not, yeah. not in the kind of original uh, uh, you know, land that is in the Torah. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that throughout this period, there was part of the theology, a desire to return, but most of that desire to return was really based on when God returns us to the land. It was right. about, right. uh, you know, when uh, a, a future time when God will return to us in a kind of form that we could feel being being able to be um, kind of back in, in the land with, with a sacred temple. Um, that is very different from the political movement of Zionism that developed uh, in the course of the 1800s and then into the early 1900s until right. the state of Israel. And so I think that, you know, there's uh, Rabbi Jill Jacobs uh, really does a beautiful job of talking about there is uh, there is the land of Israel and there is the state of Israel. And to distinguish between those two of what is in our Torah and what is yeah. the political um, nationalist reality and also the longing to return to Zion um, different than the longing to become a nation state um, on that particular piece of land. There was lots of people in Europe who could have gone there at various times and who did not want to. It was very dry. Right. Not very built up. Why would they leave Spain? Right. So I think that, you know, there's, there's just, it's, it's really important to separate um, a really rich religious history from uh, a political history that may use the same language, but has an extraordinarily different trajectory. Yeah, and we are, as a, as a pastor in the Christian faith, I am often uh, led into conversations or engaged in conversations with um, Christians who have a, that lack of understanding, the lack of, of distinction between um, Israel and the, the historical importance of the story and the faith that has come out of that, that location and the fact that we now are looking at Israel as an actual nation state that is um, undergirded with the same 
um, supremacist tendencies that every government is built upon, which is power and strength and money and allyship with other nation states that have the same power and <laughs> money that they do. And, and so it's, it, it becomes very important that we are, are distinct in, in where, in where we identify the need to um, kind of contextualize the conversation. As we know, we are, we can watch on our, our televisions or listen to NPR or read in our newspapers, you know, a, a half of the politicians in this nation um, aligning themselves with the nation state of Israel um, because they feel as if the historical importance of the land of Israel has led them to that allyship, when it, it, that really isn't the case. Um, their allyship with the nation state is really related to the need for both Israel, Netanyahu, and the United States, and whoever is in power here, to remain in, in constant um, uh, communication and oneness when it comes to um, I mean, forgive the brashness, like who we hate the most in the region. I mean, that that's that it comes down to that in many instances. And so I appreciate the fact that you have kind of helped our listeners understand the dichotomy and the differences in those two, the need for those two understandings. As we look at the conflict between Israel and Palestine, and, and really, as you have, have, have very um, articulately said, kind of what's happening in the heart of Gaza, where do you see the disconnect um, in both Jewish uh, religious practice and Christian religious practice kind of getting in the way of our understanding of the human rights um, issues that are happening? How How is our inability to see past the polity of our faith kind of getting in a way of understanding what's really happening and how we can be, um, how we can assist in, in the damage that's being caused? Yeah, thanks. Well, first I want to just build off what you were just saying about the relationship between United States and Israel and uh, politicians specifically. I think sometimes progressives or leftists, um, we, we, we assume that the U.S. Um, is really only out for itself when it comes to pretty much the whole world, right? That the U.S. acts in the U.S. interests, period. Um, but then uh, for some reason, I think we get confused when it comes to Israel, where we think that for some reason the United States has some kind of benevolent relationship to Israel, where we would never think the United States is benevolent to any other country. So I think we kind of need to remember that the United States is not benevolent to Israel. The United States is always acting in the interest of the United States. Mm -hmm. So whatever support is happening, financial, military, it is not benevolent. Just like we, I think, look at USAID to lots of places in the world and we say, that is not benevolent. That is not benevolent. Yes. You know, um, that is statecraft. And so I think we also need to remember that uh, whatever politicians say, um, we always need to remember that uh, the, the U.S. Is, is, not a, is not a benevolent international force, unfortunately. Um, but on this piece, I think, you know, gosh, we can really just look the world over and say, 
wow, this religion was really beautiful until it was backed by state power. Right. I feel like we can say that. Uh, So, what you know, what's interesting is um, I have a hard time identifying as Christian because right now to be Christian means to be a white nationalist. And, and I'm like, no, actually following Jesus is scandalous because it's about hospitality. It's about generosity. It's very Jewish, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and yet um, Christian people have so institutionalized this meaning-making practice into a kind of dogma that polarizes people that causes people to um, have more of a nationalist agenda and it's empire religion. I mean, when, when, when you get a state power or a national power absorbing religion, Mm -hmm. which is a phenomenological category of meaning making, what you then have is empire religion. And we, we see it, all throughout history. Yeah. And that is very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's beautifully put. And I would say that's what we can say we're seeing in Israel right now, that whenever you take a, exactly what you said, you said it better than I, but whenever you take a a, a religious ideology, something that people feel so deeply in their hearts, it's, it's their self, it's their soul, it's their relationship to the divine. And you back that with state power that is uh, interested in uh, increasing land, increasing wealth, uh, increasing uh, international power, uh, then it's just going to be dangerous. It's going to be dangerous for everyone. There's a lot of Jews, a lot of American Jews who, when they learn about the atrocities and human rights violations and apartheid regime of Israel, they no longer want to identify as Jewish. Right. They don't feel like they can belong to a religion that has a state backing in another part of the world that is committing these atrocities. Right. And that is for me, very painful um, because I feel like there's so much in Jewish tradition and Jewish history and uh, Jewish humor that can help us through uh, the next decades, hundreds of years, hopefully thousands of years to to survive. Um, But it makes sense to me that people would say, I see this abuse of state power. I see that it's being done in the name of a religion that I belong to. And so I refuse to have that belonging because I don't want to belong to that violence. Yeah. And, and, and what's so scary is that Christians are complicit in, in this yeah. and they, and they think that they're doing the right thing, but, but really they are accelerating harm against the least of these, which if anybody knows their Bible, that that's not Christian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, people fail to see when they're looking at the United States and the uh, politics behind support for Israel, that the Christian Zionist movement is significantly larger than the entire population of Jews 
in the United States. Um, recently, uh, there was a politician who said from Israel who said we should be courting uh, the Christian Zionist support because Jewish American support for Israel is so tenuous because People, people are uh, really on a wide spectrum of uh, how they relate to the state of Israel. So, uh, you know, that's actually uh, what's true about kind of American politics right now is, is definitely the, the, the Christian Zionist movement is, is, is much, much larger. Um, but going back to kind of the beginning, that doesn't fit into the uh, both the story that anti-Semitism tells us, which is that Jews are ultimately in charge and are somehow controlling global dynamics. Right. And it doesn't go back to the uh, stories that politicians like to tell, which is that they are somehow benevolent to world Jewry, and that is why they are supporting Israel. Right. So there's a lot of reasons why the Christian Zionist movement does not uh, get the kind of media attention that it probably ought to. Expanding on that, if, if you were to look at the capacity that the that we have as Jesus followers, we meaning myself and 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 other um, Jesus following Christians with an asterisk, um, have to kind of extend the conversation and and be in communication with our Jewish kin around. Um, both the human rights drama that's happening, as well as the need for a, a coalescing of humanity and a community um, that that really understands the 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 beauty of our our um, difference and the beauty of the the kind of world that we could build were we not to um, kind of silo ourselves in the work. Um, how does that how does that manifest for you? How does that look for you? And are you seeing examples of that happening um, here in in the United States or across the world already? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first, it's a beautiful vision. So thank you for <laughs> conjuring it. Um, yeah. I mean, my my first thought was that we in the U.S. need to hear a lot more from Palestinian and Israeli voices. And I think that I'm super honored to be here and I'm really glad to be talking with you all as, as, as comrades and um, you know, f- fellow travelers. And I think that most of us in the States don't really hear, especially from Palestinians. And so there is a way, and I know stories are so important to, to both of you, I think, that there's a way in which bringing stories, voices, and just the humanity of Palestinians into the into the 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 minds and the hearts and the community conversations that people of faith are having here in the United States is really important. Um, we've been fed real caricatures of, of Palestinians, um, and I think that that um, uh, you know, has, has led us to, to incorrect assessments of, of what's happening and what's happening in people's lives. I also think that the more that we can strengthen what Palestinians and Israelis are doing on the ground 
to fight against the occupation, to fight against apartheid conditions, to fight against laws, uh, to fight against, you know, the, the settler movement. I think putting our, our energy and our hearts and our resources behind that is, is really important. I think that there's a, there is a, a, we, I know that I still suffer from that American sense of like, we have ultimate control in what happens in the globe and what we do is going to have the biggest impact. And, you know, the United States does have a huge impact in the Middle East for all reasons that we've said, you know, uh, aid, uh, you know, allyship, weapons, all of that. Um, but I think we, we know that when it comes to, to issues here, we know that the people who are most impacted are the ones who are going to know the best solutions, right? And so I think that there's a lot of thinking that we do here in the States, even really well-meaning people of faith, thinking about what we do here in the States. And I just want us to be really in conversation or listening to and hearing from Palestinian and Israeli voices about what do they think is needed? What do they think is the solution? What do they think um, those of us with our hearts um, open to this, you know, very small and very violent part of the world um, can do. I think that there can be some openings for us and some, some humility um, on our part that can actually serve us really well in the movement work that we're doing. Well, and to actually take a posture of listening, right? We, I mean, we have we have such a supremacist orientation in this country that we think we know the solutions of what is needed for people in the, in the Gaza area in, in Israel, Palestine. And what we need to do is start listening to one another. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you are um, located on the East coast or in the East um, here in the U S um, and your work as a Jewish organizer um, has led you to do a, a fair amount of, of work around white supremacy. Um, it's no secret to any of us in the, in the work that um, um Jewish anti-Semitism is as pervasive um, as um, racism is in many parts of the world um, and specifically in many parts of the United States. Um, tell us a little bit about your work in that, in that space and how you see um, the anti-Semitism um, tactics either increasing um, or, or decreasing and, and dying down based on where we find ourselves today here in the States. Yeah. 10,000 things to say, so I'll narrow it down. So a lot of the work that I try to do actually is um, really connecting the dots between anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism here in the United States and being able to identify the ways that both of them are used to build division and fear and separate communities from organizing together and getting what we all need to thrive. 
and that both of them are uh, perpetrated continually by leaders who are using that division and fear to build their own power and build their own wealth. I think that so much of the the conversation is around hate and bigotry um, when really I see it as being about power and division. And so in that way, um, there's a lot of really uh, beautiful connections um, that have been made as people really um, identify, especially with this growing white nationalist movement, the ways in which both anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism really manifest uh, in that movement. Uh, and the way that Jews are blamed as the ultimate uh, controller of uh, the deep state or whatever other conspiracy is happening here in the U.S. Um, and that Black people and brown people and immigrants um, are being controlled, but are being are the ones who are then taking people's jobs or um, putting people in danger, et cetera, et cetera. So we know that these stories of dehumanization really play off of each other and are used by um, by people in power to, to amass that power and wealth. And it's the um, same kind of strategy narrative that is used from, from people coming from Latin America, right? right? They're coming in, stealing our jobs, yada, yada. I'm like, you don't want to work at McDonald's. Right. Yeah. You yeah. don't want to pick your groceries from the ground. You're yeah. going to let somebody else do that. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. And calling, you know, people rapists and whatnot who come from these, right. There, there's a, there's a, a an, an implicit narrative of violence yeah. in, 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 that is that is by design i think yeah 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 i agree i agree and and i think when we're looking for those intersections it is not it is not hard i mean the the worst um anti-semitic physical uh attack that's ever happened on u.s soil was at the tree of life synagogue in pittsburgh just a few years ago right and the the uh shooter went in because he had been convinced uh, by the conspiracy theories that by the way were brought from the far right into the mainstream by uh representative matt gates of florida that does not get said often enough and i would right. like to work that out that deserves um, repeating matt gates <laughs> Um, th uh, that the story that there was a, you know, really a mob from Latin America that was coming up, um, to the United States and was going to be putting white Christian people in danger and that George Soros was financing the whole thing. This was a conspiracy theory that reached somewhere above 650 million people in the United States online before the shooter went in to that synagogue and he shot Jews as a way of protecting white Christian America from Brown immigrants. So these, these stories put all of us in danger. Anti-immigrant well, racism puts Jews in danger. Right. Anti-Semitism puts immigrants in danger. It, they, these things really. These and things I, really I, I, I just want to add to the complexity of this because while this conspiracy was going around that George Soros was funding everything, I had taken a car service in Nashville because I had flown in late. <clears throat> My flight was delayed. This is in the before times, of course. And 
the driver said, I looked you up. I know what you do. Do you work for George Soros? Mm-hmm. And, and I am sort of freaking out, you know, because I, I know the, the, the narratives that are out there mm-hmm. and it's late at night and he's not taking me home. He, he's not going the route to where I lived. And, and I said, uh, you know, where are you taking me? This is not the route to my, to my house. And he says, well, I'm taking you to this address. And I'm like, that's not my address. And so I'm really panicked because it's like 10 or 11 at night in the South, you know, and I'm with somebody who thinks that I work for George Soros. And um, so he says, oh, well, put in your address. So he pulls off the road into this. um, I mean, it's a neighborhood, but it's, uh, you know, there's no streetlights. It's in the country. You know, I'm I'm pretty panicked at this point. I put in my address and and, and it's another 20 minutes to get there. I mean, he he had really taken me far out. Who knows what was going to happen, you know, and um I was, I was on the phone with someone. I did call someone. He took me to um, my, where I lived. And while we were in route, he said, you know, black people, don't you just think, I mean, don't you think they have enough? Haven't we given them enough? You know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm in a situation where I could very well be harmed. Yeah. It's at night. Um, and so this conspiracy is very real and people are impacted on in very real ways. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like there's there's no I mean, there is no safety. Safety is an illusion. Right. And if we are fighting for the liberation of all people, there is a cost to that and there is a risk to that. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, we've all been in situations where we have faced that risk, but, but this particular narrative around George Soros funding this thing has seeped into lots of different people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened. And I'm so, so, so relieved that you got home safe. Yeah, me too. And yeah, that's an example of where we try to say that anti-Semitism hurts everybody. Uh, You know, that, that you were physically, in danger uh, because, I mean, because of the risks you take in your work and because somebody believed in anti-Semitic story that set you up as somebody who could be harmed. I mean, that's, that's so frightening and it's just a demonstration of how we're not, we're not separate. Right. These stories of dehumanization target all of us. Right. Oh, I wanted to, to answer, um, Anna, what you were asking about, about how this is happening today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult to have an assessment. I feel like to have a grounded assessment of what's happening today because um, a lot of people in the United States and around the globe are taking to the streets and taking action in support of Palestinian rights and Palestinian liberation and against the violence of the occupying Israeli government. And that should be supported and celebrated. And anti-Semitism is really confusing. And a lot of people 
don't understand anti-Semitism, don't know about anti-Semitism, and can uh, unknowingly be using anti-Semitism. That's different from people who are actively using anti-Semitism and who are benefiting from that. So I, I think one, it's important to make that distinction. Um, Another thing I would say is that the Palestinian rights movement, by and large, is actually way more educated on anti-Semitism than most social justice movements, um, especially, I would say, over the last 10 years. Um, and they really had to be. So uh, I've been really moved by Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and Palestinians in other countries really voicing that these anti-Semitic attacks, anti-Semitic slogans, um, anything that is targeting Jews, um, out, out in the world is not in support of Palestinian rights, not in support of Palestinian liberation. Really, you know, we do see people who are targeting individual Jews that live in different places in the world as a kind of outpost uh, of the state of Israel. And that's, again, where people are, uh, I mean, that's anti-Semitism right there, targeting Jews as Jews. Um, and it's people who are, um, misconnecting an individual person with the acts that are taking part from the state. I will say there are institutions, Jewish and Christian and otherwise, who are actively in support of the Israeli government's actions. And so that's a whole nother conversation. But what we're talking about is individual Jews living their lives and being targeted uh, by people as some kind of representative for a government of a country that they don't live in. And that is, it's, it's scary. It's frightening. That's not in support of anyone's human rights. And I've been really moved to see people um, saying this is not, this is not part of this liberation movement. Um, and I will say that, you know, uh, members of the, the right um, are taking advantage of this. There's been news reports of uh, people like Nick Fuentes and other far right uh, activists who have been, um, really co-opting some Palestinian liberation messages with anti-Semitism to really inject more anti-Semitism into the debate and to use what's happening right now to spread more anti-Semitic thought. Um, so there are actors who are acting not even on behalf of Palestine um, who are taking this opportunity to um, to sow the ideology that they are seeking to spread. So there's a lot of dynamics happening um, at the same time, we've seen, you know, a, a rise in anti-Semitism in this country and, and throughout Europe as there's just been a right of ethno-nationalist movements. Um, so there, there, is a, there, there is a lot of suffering happening by a lot of people across the globe right now. Um, I will say, though, that... Um, none of this is an excuse for anything else, right? That the violence that is happening against Jews is not, cannot be excused by the fact that uh, the Israeli government uh, had horrible bombing of Gaza, just like we cannot say that uh, we cannot uh, make equivalences between individual attacks um, and, and state violence. I think that there's a, we need to be able to wrestle with the difference between uh, individual, collective, and state violence. Um, and we need to be able to, to respond to them accordingly. Um, so I think that is an entirely unclear answer. Um, but I do think that, um, that it, it is, 
it is really messy what's going on right now. And I will say that there's human beings who are, um, who are extremely misguided in their solidarity actions. And there's other human beings who are just using the moment to attack Jews. Um, but, what we, but what we know is that that doesn't help the Palestinian liberation movement. That doesn't help Palestinians on the ground. Um, sharing their stories, sharing their messages, um, fighting for their rights, um, being clear that fighting for a Palestinian state is not inherently anti-Semitic. Um, all of these things are what's going to support the movement, um, being part of economic boycotts that have been called. Um, these are the ways to support and obviously not attacking individual Jews on the street. And and just for our listeners, can you let us know the things that we should be boycotting? Because, you know, we hear things, but we, you know, we, we try to connect the dots for people. And so what are the things that we should, I mean, other than SodaStream, what should we be boycotting? Yeah, I'm, um, I would say to be uh, going to the um, boycott, divestment and sanctions websites, because um, they're going to have uh, really information on what's, what's, what's updated and where they see um, strategic impacts being possible. Um, so, yeah, I would thank you for the source. Yeah, we'll definitely include that in the show notes. Um, and speaking of show notes, um, how can folks engage with you? Um, what's the best way for people to um, to continue this conversation, to ask questions, to uh, get involved in the work that you're doing here in the U.S.? How can how can folks stay up to date with what you're doing? Well, you can. <laughs> You can follow me on Twitter, although I will say I basically just repost what other wise, um, interesting and hysterical people post. Um, but you can see what I'm reading, at least. Um, I do have all of my uh, political education resources up in one place on Squarespace. Um, and so you can get to that. It's just at dovekent.squarespace.com. And that's where I have um, uh, articles, um, podcasts, videos, um, different education tools that I've built with other comrades. Um, I'll be excited to, to put this up there too. Um, trying to collect all the political ed in one place. Um, and uh, you know, I have a lots of political feelings about it, but I'm, I post all the time on Facebook. You can follow me there. Um, you know, we all make weird compromises in our political lives. That's right. mine. <laughs> right. um, um, yeah. And um, I will say that um, some of the the work that I would love for listeners to be supporting. Um, there's a new resource that's out there called the Jerusalem Declaration and uh, the, Jer the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism. And it's a new uh, tool that's been developed by over 200 uh, global scholars that really is uh, drawing the lines between anti-Semitism and uh, the, uh, the fight for Palestinian liberation and really makes clear um, where, it, uh, where language uh, can become anti-Semitic. So it's a really good guidelines for people to be able to be really uh, confident in their Palestinian liberation work. And it's also a really good tool for the uh, fight against bad faith accusations that come at Palestinians and other people who are 
fighting here in the States and elsewhere for uh, Palestinian liberation and are accused of anti-Semitism because of that. It's a really good tool that can be used in defense of activists. So Jerusalem Declaration, uh, look that up. Uh, It's a really beautiful tool that people can, can start to use. Thank you. Yeah, we will definitely share that in the show notes too. Um, thank you for that. Um, this has been this has been a much needed conversation. But as you said, Dove, it's a conversation that um, can still feel very consuming and very confusing um, as we navigate the nuance of. Um, the really religiosity that's involved of the political ramifications that are involved with the human rights issues that are involved. Um, there are few clear answers other than we are to be here for and with one another. And if we truly are people who believe that this divine community is one that is worth having and one that is worth engaging in, then um, it's that kind of work that we should be uh, diving deeply into. And and that's the work of activists activist theology. It's the work that Robin and I are um, trying to do um, every week that we that yeah. we share voices like yours um, over the airwaves. And we can't thank you enough for being a part of this conversation with us today and for um, engaging with us on this really, this really important topic. Thank you. Dr. Robin, we will be back again next week. Don't forget, follow us at Activist Theology. We will let you know more about our travels and where we're going to be, but please do plan on joining us if you are in Austin, Texas on August the 7th. And we will um, we'll, we'll talk to you uh, next week. We'll see you then. And hopefully we have an announcement to make next month. You know what I'm talking about, Anna? I do. So hopefully we have an announcement. to Y'all, things are cooking. Things are cooking. All right. Well, Dr. Robin, Dove, thank you so much for this conversation. And until next week, we will continue to be in solidarity. And um, we only have one task, Robin. Let's get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, Activist and theology share a tea. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. 